how's it going? Hey, it's going really well. I am glad to be out of the car. We spent the entire weekend driving our son out to college in Montana and then driving back. So a lot of miles on the road and everybody is where they need to be. And we did so safely and we're very happy and excited for him. But man, I am done driving. Man, I got to tell you, the fact that the college is in Montana inspires so many stereotypes in my head. What would those be? That there's no other people, that there's more trees than people. Well, I I have to say, he's at the Montana Wilderness School of the Bible. And so wilderness is in the title for a reason. It is way out in the middle of nowhere. So the lack of people is spot on. He went to church his first Sunday there an hour from the campus because it's one of the closest churches that he can get to. And then after church, he spent some time in the parking lot getting taught by some kids how to rope, uh, do some roping with a lasso. So if that reinforces any of your stereotypes, you're welcome. Yes, that is exactly what I was envisioning. So I am thrilled that he is learning to lasso things. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah. So what about you? What do you what What's going on? Man, so it is the first week of school here as well. And both kids have been off on the bus to school, uh, eighth and tenth grades, and just diving into their school experience. My daughter has a class on outdoor experience that I was thinking of when you were talking about lassoing. It's an eighth grade class that involves everything from how to light a fire to how to shoot a gun. Uh, And my son has classes that range from intro to business to intro to cooking. So it's going to be quite a year. Wow, no doubt. Your son's going to be making dinner and your daughter's going to shoot and kill at dinner. Mm-hmm. All those deer in the backyard better watch out. Yeah. Well, hey, I am calling to return the favor from last week. Last week, we followed up the previous week's conversation about what is the soul by talking about what effect working at 911 has on the soul. But now I'm eager to turn the tables and find out from you what the effect of pastoring has on your soul. How do you feel about that? That's fascinating. I would love to talk about that. I honestly, I'm interested in exploring that for myself as much as in answering your questions for you. I'm curious what I am going to learn about myself as we talk about this. So yeah, let's jump on into that. That sounds fascinating. Well, before we get into the meat and potatoes of it, I feel like just like you did last week, kind of set the stage a little bit because I think people have an image of the senior pastor as somebody who preaches on Sundays. And then, I don't know, who knows what they do the rest of the week. They probably work on their sermon. And then after that, nobody really knows. But I think as opaque as that might be to the general public, a staff pastor or a senior associate pastor even, what in the world does an average day look like for you in that role? So 
The one thing that surprises people maybe more than anything else is that there's a lot more admin involved than one might expect in being an associate pastor. There is a heavy, heavy amount of admin. Just this week, I had to deal with four different companies that have to do things on our building, the alarm company, the roofing company, the company that we get our lighting and technology from, then a a different lighting company as well. I also have to call a plumber. So there's a lot of like facilities-y kinds of things uh, on the one hand. And then there's all sorts of media-related stuff. We have recorded testimonies every Sunday, recorded announcements every Sunday, and all of that takes some time to record and edit and all those kinds of things. And then there's um, meetings that happen. Sometimes those are meetings where I am helping someone take a step forward in the way that they serve in the church. Uh, Sometimes those are meetings where somebody in the church knows more about an area of ministry than me, and so they're helping me figure out how to do better. So, for example, today I I met with somebody who uh, knows a lot more about media and technology than I do, and so uh, she and I were brainstorming how to step up the church's game in that arena, which is super fun and exciting to me. And then... I'm regularly meeting with key leaders in our church, helping them clearly identify their ministry portfolio and making sure that they accomplish their responsibilities, providing accountability, uh, those kinds of things. And then there's just the random connections or tasks. So I met today with a woman that works for a job training organization, a company that provides jobs for people who are dealing with disabilities. And uh, she'd reached out and said, hey, we suspect that there are a lot of folks in your church that would benefit from this resource. Can we talk about it? So I had a 45-minute meeting with her to hear about that. And uh, so it's all sorts of things. It's, It's, you know, 30 texts and 50 emails and uh, a computer project and a maintenance project and uh, maybe for a lot of people a financial project uh, all strewn in amidst meetings about discipleship that can stretch from introducing somebody to the Bible for the very first time to how do you be a better leader in the church and everything in between. That's fascinating that so much of your time is dedicated to, quote-unquote, non-spiritual things. Mm -hmm. So I'm wondering, how does your job differ from what you expected your job to be when you were in seminary? Mm. Well, let me back up to when I was in college. Is that fair? I have a clearer remembrance of what I expected my job to be when I was in college than I remember seminary. When I was in college, I don't know, do you remember, I think it's a Michael W. Smith song called Kentucky Rose from like the early 90s. Yeah, yeah. Um, Every Christian knows Michael W. Smith, right? At least from our generation, right? Right, He was the only Christian artist there was. Yes, except for DC Talk. Those were your two options. So he had this song, it was about like a country pastor and... I came to Missouri to prepare for ministry, fully expected to stay in the Midwest and 
be at a small town country church where I would spend a large chunk of my time connecting with and encouraging and supporting people, where I would sit down at a kitchen table with somebody and talk about what it means to be following Jesus in the midst of their financial struggle, to be following Jesus in the midst of their marriage or whatever. Uh, and so I, I definitely expected it to be very people-oriented. I expected it to be deep people conversations. That's, that's what I love, deep people conversations. Throughout my college years, I shifted from expecting to go into a country context to a more inner city context. And I still think I understood it to be very deep conversation driven, but I understood that to be a little bit broader. I started to understand that that would involve things like mental health, involve things like job skills, involve things like poverty and homelessness and addiction. But I still envisioned it being very one-on-one. And one of the things that I've come to see throughout the years in ministry is that if I have five hours to devote to a project, I can either meet with five people during those five hours, or I can spend those five hours creating a systemic response that the church can offer that empowers some people to serve in ministry and others to be impacted by that ministry. And that allows me to influence and mobilize and support a significantly larger group of people. But in order to do so, I have to take one step back and be the administrator rather than the direct minister. That is really, really fascinating. I can see how stepping back to do that systemic approach that you're talking about would help broaden the reach of your ministry. Whereas mm-hmm. one-on-one, you're really affecting one person at a time. So I can see the efficiency of that. But I suspect that each of those things has a different effect upon you as a pastor. And I actually would like to know, since you had so many preconceived ideas of ministry that involved deep conversations with one or one on a few What effect has it had on your soul to shift to more of a systemic, maybe programmatic, staff-leading type of a role where your one-on-one interaction is greatly reduced? Mm. You know, it's funny. So you said something last week that I am now going to follow up on when I asked my first question about the soul. You said, before I answer that, I need to come back to what the soul is. And... I feel like I need to do that same thing. If we think of the soul as the executive center of the person, it's the the part of the human being that can say yes or no to my thoughts, my feelings, and my desires. If that's really what the soul is, then I have the capacity as a human being with a soul to sort of change gears in a different way just because I expected it to be one thing and I am now choosing to do something else 
first of all, you'll even notice my language there. A lot of people in ministry, I think where they get lost or stuck is they start saying, I expected ministry to be like this, whatever this is, and instead I have to do this. Mm. I think when there's a pivot required in ministry, which involves a redefinition of ministry as well as a reallotment of one's time, and I always come back to Ephesians chapter 4 where it says, we equip the saints for the work of the ministry. That's what pastors do. Mm. So am I equipping the saints for the work of the ministry? Absolutely. So I'm, I'm good with Jesus. He's cool with what I'm doing. So then as I pivot from direct ministry to what I'm calling administrative ministry, maybe it'd be a little bit more accurate to call it indirect ministry, mm. what pastoral ministry should mean, in my opinion, uh, based on that <laughs> Ephesians 4 verse. Sure. Um, if I'm equipping everybody else to do ministry, then I'm doing my job when I get flyers ordered and send somebody else out to hand them out. I'm doing my job when I record a testimony that somebody else is sharing so that everybody can see it. Hmm. When I make sure the lights are paid and the roof isn't leaking so that the worship team can lead a service, I'm doing my job. I'm equipping the saints for the work of the ministry. I'm, I'm making sure there's space, time, and resources available for them. But when that pivot has to happen, I think what impacts the soul the most is not the pivot itself, but the response to the pivot. If I pivot and say, now I'm choosing to do this stuff, I'm acknowledging that as a person with a soul, I get to say yes or no to my thoughts, feelings, and desires. I don't have to be controlled by my wants. I don't have to be controlled by what I thought ministry was. I get to say yes or no to those things. And that is a very empowering place to be that I find very exciting. And honestly, I think it is very good for my spiritual life because it shaves off the rough edges of my selfishness, my self-centeredness, my ego, that is so real for anybody in ministry. And quite frankly, the one-on-one -on -one direct ministry stuff makes you feel a lot better. There is no person going into ministry that is not going to feel better in having a spiritual conversation with a person than they are in calling the plumber about the leak that is in the downstairs bathroom. One of those feels spiritual and the other doesn't. Right. Yeah, it really does. But I, you have given such a great vision for what these quote-unquote non-spiritual tasks actually accomplish for the body of Christ. As you said, your job is to equip the saints for ministry. And so making sure they have the space, time, and resources for everybody else to be able to do what they need to do. That is a spiritual thing, even though paying the light bill doesn't feel very academic or spiritual or why in the world did I need a master's of divinity in order to pay the light bill. So I just love your interpretation and I uh, love the pivot that you've clearly made, not just talked about, not just given nod to, but you've done some reflection to show this is truly a work for God's kingdom to do these administrative tasks so that other people can step up and do the ministry in different capacities. And the moment that I 
empower myself by saying I'm choosing those things and remind myself of why I'm doing them, they become good for my soul. Mm. It really is when I use that have-to language. Well, I don't get to talk to people because I'm too busy paying the light bill. If I use that language, the exact same tasks will become soul-crushing. Sure. And like I said, I really think the difference is not the task itself, but quite honestly, it's the cross on which I die to self or not. And I, and I don't mean to say, boy, I hate this. It's just, it really is the, the death of the ego, I think, a lot of times. So I think that everything you've talked about there is transferable to every church context all across America. But I think you also have some pieces that are unique to your ministry context. In the 18 years that you've been pastoring, it's all been in an inner city context, which is a mm -hmm. far cry from that small Missouri town idea that you had in college. So yeah. I'd love to hear more about what you find to be unique about inner city ministry that is not transferable to other contexts. Sure. Well, and, and I can't say if it's transferable to other contexts, but I can speak to the things that I have been maybe surprised by both positively and negatively about that context. Does that make sense? I, I've never pastored in a suburban church, so a suburban pastor might be listening and saying, yeah, I have those exact same experiences, uh, and I don't want to minimize his or her experiences in any way because I, I can't. I can't speak to them, but I will say, first, on the positive side, one of the things I absolutely love about inner city work is that there is an authentic transparency. People who are dealing with addiction, abuse, and those kinds of issues, there is no hiding and there is no faking, at least not in inner city context. They don't have the financial resources to hide that stuff. Mm. And so that comes with what frequently is a significant willingness to be transparent. And that willingness to be transparent results in a really powerful spiritual momentum that is awakened in their lives kind of going back to some of the confession stuff we talked about last week. When somebody meets Jesus at the end of their rope in a prison cell where they have lost everything and there is nobody they can point to except themselves as the problem here, they are willing to buy in on Jesus lock, stock, and barrel because they've got nothing else. No other shot. And they know perfectly well that if Jesus fails them, they might OD tomorrow. That results in a pursuit of Jesus at a pace that many of us who grew up in the church have the potential to be inspired by. And this is one of the reasons I've landed at inner city churches. I am daily inspired by the men and women I serve with and among who are going after Jesus all in 100% without reservation because they get the fact that they have no life without Jesus. And they don't mean they have no heavenly life or eternal life without Jesus. They mean, like, they may never see their kids again without Jesus. They may be locked up in prison for the rest of their lives without Jesus. 
they may be on the street in the middle of the cold, raining day with nothing but the pants that they're wearing and no shirt. And they've surrendered everything to the drug or the bottle without Jesus. And I am so inspired by the passion that that awakens. I'm inspired just listening. It's amazing. It's the greatest thing in the world to see people who go after Jesus all in. So on the plus side, I would have never dreamed how inspiring I find people to be. And the reminder that I get to choose every one of these folks. You know, I, I work with people in my church every day who are following Jesus passionately who could go make a decision to relapse literally anytime they wanted because their radar for finding drugs has been finely honed and it never goes away. So if they want to find drugs, they can go find drugs. It's not a problem. And every day they choose not to. Mm-hmm. That is a strong soul. I don't care if that person is still cussing. I don't care if that person hasn't uh, completely got their finances sorted out. All of that stuff needs to come. And I'm not saying people should just settle for the for the win they've already got. But there is a strength of soul that comes from those decisions that deserves celebration. Yeah. I had a friend that was on the other side of recovery, 20 years clean, and he once said that he finds it difficult to interact with people who have not overcome addiction because the strength of soul necessary to do so produces such strong character that he is drawn to that some people who have not struggled in the same way and not overcome the same things didn't have the same strength of character and soul that you're talking about, and he kind of found them a little shallow. And so it was really hard for him to interact with people that were not former addicts. Yeah, it's a different brand. Now, the challenge on the flip side of that when we're dealing with folks who have are returning citizens or dealing with addiction or whatever is regularly you invest time and energy and resources into training people and then they disappear. Mm. So in the last year, we have had leaders disappear. We've had volunteers on every single one of our teams disappear. And that means that suddenly the stability of the team is at risk because you're working with folks whose lives aren't stable yet. And to help them take ownership in the church is valuable, but you help them take ownership in the church. The way you pay for that is by allowing them to serve, and that complicates things. Yeah. And you don't get to judge in advance, is this person going to make it this time? Some of the best volunteers I have have been incarcerated the most recently, and some of the volunteers that have disappeared in the last two months had been recently incarcerated or dealing with addiction. It just is what it is. I don't get to judge. And maybe that's another thing that's good for my soul. I don't get to decide what decisions somebody is going to make tomorrow. That is outside of my control. I just have to work with the people I've got and constantly keep recruiting, which is an issue every church has to deal with. 
Recruitment mm. and volunteers is constantly an issue that I've, I've never talked to a pastor who didn't say that was an issue. Um, sure. Again, maybe we just get to be a little bit more honest about it because we know if we recruit three volunteers, one or two of them is going to disappear. Boy, I've always found it fascinating that many of the same people that deal with uh, drugs and various forms of addiction in and out of jail, these are the same people that I interact with in a very different way from 911. Mm. And I have always found a measure of hope in knowing that there are churches like yours that are reaching out to this population and offering them Jesus Christ, offering them hope, giving them a new future. This is so vital, and I hope that your ministry and so many others like it continue to reach the least, the last, and the lost, because, boy, these folks really, really need that olive branch of hope that you guys are putting out there. Yeah, it is fun to watch when Jesus does what only Jesus can do in somebody's life. Yeah. So that's one aspect of your job, but a significant portion of your job is to oversee the staff. So I'd actually like to kind of open it up and invite you to reflect on what is the effect of leading a staff? What, what effect does that have on your soul? You know, this is interesting. I, this is something I think might be very different from church to church and from context to context. Being the person overseeing the staff raises one really important question. Can you be friends with people you lead? Mm. Because at the end of the day, if you're leading and pastoring somebody, you have to be willing to have a really complicated conversation. A friend can do the math in their head and say, you know what? The relationship matters. I can't necessarily have this conversation with that person at this time. Now, certain kinds of friendships like ours where we have built the, con the friendship on the ability to challenge one another may be more exempt than less. But at the end of the day, the relationship is itself an end worth pursuing. Mm -hmm. As a pastor, the relationship is not the end I'm pursuing ever. That person's spiritual well-being is the end that I'm pursuing as their pastor, leader, uh, boss, spiritual person. And so, therefore, I have to ask the question, how close can we be while I am still able to have those tough conversations if I need to? And the two churches that I have been a part of answer this question really differently. The church I was at previously answers this question in a far more stratified fashion. Uh, you cannot be someone's pastor and their friend because you're not going to be able to pull it off and it's going to do you or them damage. And that element of it can be dangerous for your soul because it can be very isolating. But on the flip side, yes, I can be their pastor and their friend can be equally spiritually dangerous 
because it is my fundamental calling to make sure that this person is growing in their relationship with God. And if I choose not to have a hard conversation for the sake of our relationship, what is that doing to my soul? I don't think that's doing good work for my soul either. And the range of people at the church I'm at now is so interesting. Several of them are older than me. Several of them have been in ministry longer than me. In that situation, quite honestly, it is great for my soul. I am challenged and inspired and helped to feel connected and reminded of who I am in Christ and all sorts of really positive. It's amazing to be, when you're on a good team, it is an amazing thing. Uh, I have several folks that I serve with now that I would genuinely count among my friends, that I deeply value them beyond the ministry relationship. And so I've, I've walked this line all over the place, but that's the potential challenges that I see. It sounds incredibly challenging. And for those who are disinclined to become friends with those that they lead or their personality makes that prohibitive or their situation makes that prohibitive, it reminds me of one of the major findings in your wife's dissertation. Uh, Mm -hmm. She did her PhD. You're going to know this better than I, but basically on help-seeking behaviors of pastors. Is that true? That is true. It's uh, So she surveyed over a thousand Assemblies of God pastors from coast to coast in the United States, asking them a host of questions about help seeking and trying to determine what behaviors correlate with a willingness to seek help when needing. And by help seeking, we mean Are you willing to go to a therapist if you need to? Uh, Those kinds of things. One of the findings that she had that I think is what you're referring to is she found that pastors who have at least two close friends are far more willing to seek help when they need it than other pastors, which is wildly important because the incidence of things like depression among pastors is significantly higher than the overall population. So deep friendships correlate with a willingness to seek help. Is that what you were referring to? It totally is. And it's... Which, by the way, if you want to read more about that, she is turning it into an article that will be coming out in Influence magazine by the time this airs, probably the next month or so. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, you'll have to let me know when that comes out. I would love to read that. So, hey, I have a thousand questions that we did not get to, but I absolutely have to end this segment by asking this question. 2 Timothy 1.16, Paul writes, May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, because he refreshed me often, and he was not ashamed of my chains. And I love that passage, and I love the ministry of Anesiphorus. So my question to you is, for all the listeners out there who may not be pastors, 
what is something that they can do to refresh the soul of their pastor? Mm. You know, I, I think this is going to have in part to do with the individual pastor's love language. Are they a person who receives gifts and experiences that as love? Are they a person who experiences words of affirmation and think of that as love, quality time, whatever? One of the things, particularly among parishioners who are older than the pastor, him or herself, that I have found to be wildly refreshing is when they take the time to see me as a person. When I am asked, how are you doing? And I can tell they actually mean it. When we have a a meeting and it's the third meeting in a row that we've had where they're actually asking about my life. As a quality time person, that is deeply meaningful to me. Uh, As it is, by the way, from anybody, but uniquely so when the person is a step or two ahead of me. Pastors, particularly associate pastors, land in their role because there is something in them that they want to be led. They want to know that there's people ahead of them. And so I think when somebody is a step, half a step, whatever, ahead and says, hey, you matter, whether they are ahead spiritually or just ahead in terms of life experience and life maturity or whatever, that's deeply meaningful. You know, I would love to invite the folks who are listening into this conversation. You know, you can respond to our social media posts, and we would love that. Please share our social media posts. That's a great way to broaden the conversation out. But then, you know, I want to encourage you, if there is something particular in our conversation today that you thought was meaningful, I would love to have you share this particular episode with a friend by texting it to them and using it as the starting of a conversation between you and them about what's going on in their soul, about what's going on in your soul. So share this with a friend sometime this week. Please do. I think that opens up the opportunity to have some of the same conversations that you and I have been having with people about the podcast. I love when people text me or pull me aside and say, hey, I heard this on the the podcast and I really appreciated it. And it gives you a as a listener, an opportunity to share that conversation with somebody else and hopefully spark up something really, really good. Yeah, absolutely. So what about stepping aside from all this stuff about the soul and pastoring? What else have you been thinking about this week? Yeah, I kind of got hung up this week on a phrase that somebody used. I was in a context where there were a number of Christians from a variety of backgrounds gathered And somebody referred to Bible-believing Christians. And I've been stuck on that phrase ever since because I don't know what it means. I think I know what they might have meant by Bible-believing Christian, but I kind of think all Christians believe in the Bible, so we must mean something more than that by the term. But I don't know. Is it a way of interpreting the Bible? Is it holding to certain doctrines? And if so, which ones? Is it referring to more of an ideology that is based in the American political system? Or what? I don't know. 
what makes somebody a Bible-believing Christian? What would it look like for somebody to be a Bible-believing Christian? Or conversely, what would it look like for somebody to not be a Bible-believing Christian? I just was taken back by the phrase, and I kind of felt like it intended to convey more than it actually conveyed. Hmm. And I guess I still don't even have a clear definition. I don't know. Do you have a clear definition of what somebody might mean by that? You know, if I'm being honest, and by honest, I may mean mildly cynical here. But <laughs> if I'm being honest, I really think that when we use that phrase, Bible-believing Christian, what we really mean is us versus them. Hmm. We're the good Christians and they're not. I think it's a way of drawing party lines and identifying insiders and outsiders in a way that I'm not entirely sure is helpful because you're absolutely right. The implication is real Christians are Bible believing Christians and everybody else is just Christians in quotes. <laughs> right. I, I do. I don't know what else so. that could possibly mean. Right. Right. But I still don't know what the defining marks of the in crowd might be. Well, and I think that probably differs from person to person, group to group. I mean, that's why I said it's just us versus them. It's whatever we believe. Mm, sure. We're the Bible-believing ones. So if, you know, in my circle, that might mean Pentecostals are authentically Bible-believing, whereas you Baptists aren't. For Baptists, it might mean that you Baptists are Bible-believing and the Episcopalians aren't or the mainline churches aren't, or Roman Catholics aren't, or whatever. For all of us as evangelicals, we mean we're Bible-believing compared to, you know, it's it's always, and this is what I think, I, why I think it's so unhelpful, it's we're Bible-believing compared to whom? <laughs> and why yeah. did we decide we have to compare ourselves? Right, right. Uh, thank you. I had a very similar cynical response but the phrase has still stuck with me. So I've been gnawing on that for the last few days. But um, those are my thoughts. What, what about you? What have you been thinking about? Well, before I, before I jump into my thought, let me start off by apologizing because I am sure there is a person out there who has used the phrase Bible-believing in the last week and meant nothing comparative about it and mm. was authentically trying to draw a line to what it means between what it means to be a follow, a Christian and being dependent for truth on the Bible. And if that is what you meant, good for you. I agree with you. And I don't want to lump everybody in the same category just because my limited experience tells me that that phrase can be weaponized. doesn't mean that it, it always is. Hmm. Yeah. Um, that's a fair point. But speaking of weaponized, um, <laughs> oh, this will be fun. The, so uh, my wife and I have been reading the book Rage Together by Bob Woodward. Woodward being a longtime journalist for the Washington Post. He's the guy who first broke or wrote about the Watergate scandal back in the day. Uh, and he has written a trilogy of books about the Trump presidency. And this is the third of those books, and it is about the Trump presidency as it leads up to the January 6th riots 
and to the transfer of power from President Trump to President Biden. Hmm. Similar to you having a question, I just find myself pausing to ask the question, what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus who is authentically informed about day-to-day and world issues? That's such a trippy question these days because, yeah, as so many people define authentically informed radically different. Absolutely. And I certainly am not here to advocate what I currently do. Having seen a lot of my fellow biblical conservatives also end up being political conservatives and seeing that group of people advocate political conservatism as the only way to be a Christian engaging in politics and finding that to be uncomfortable, my general response has been to stick my head in the sand and ignore politics altogether. (laughs) Uh, If I'm being completely honest. Yeah. So I am not trying to say that I have figured this out. This is not a segue into a monologue. It is just something that I wrestle with on a regular basis, wanting to honor Jesus in the way that I engage with the leadership of our country. Because if I believe in American democracy on any level, what that means is the flip. Do you remember this from school? You had the government over the governed, and then that flips in the American experiment, and it's the governed over the government, which means I'm the one in charge, which means mm-hmm. I have some level of responsibility over my government. But what does it mean to honor Jesus in how I engage with that? And I, I don't have a good answer. Yeah, I think it's a really difficult thing to answer, largely because nothing like American democracy was envisioned at the time that the Bible was written. And so it doesn't speak to this moment directly. There are a lot of principles we can apply, but how and where to apply them is a very interesting conversation. Yes, exactly. Well, since we were never, ever going to solve that question in three seconds or less, let's turn to the which Josh question, which can be answered (laughs) rather quickly. Yes, absolutely. All right. So this week we posted on social media, which Josh has five sets of headphones? That's one, two, three, four, five, five sets of headphones and uses them regularly. You can tell by my sarcasm, this is not me. Nope, that would be me. I had to go count them all up because I use headphones almost incessantly throughout the day unless there's another person around. So I have, I sleep with headphones in. It helps me, my mind spins a lot. So I have a set that I sleep with. I have wireless earbuds at my house, wireless earbuds at my work. I also have noise, like good noise canceling headphones because I have a dog and the only way I can love my dog is if I can ignore him at at times. (laughs) And I don't know if you can hear it, but he is literally, as I'm saying this, barking in the background and I want to tear my hair out. But, um, you know, so there's that. And then I have a set of wired headphones because every once in a while you just 
for whatever reason, you need some that are wired because you're going on an airplane or whatever, or I need to be able to plug it into my laptop. They're just sometimes it's a little bit easier. And so I have all of these headphones, every one of which I use pretty much almost every single week. And uh, that says something for a guy who listens to virtually no music. That is a lot <laughs> of headphone use. It is a lot of headphones. And I seem to have the power of breaking your headphones. It seems like uh, every time we get on the phone with one another, I'm like, yeah, no, those ones aren't working. Those, No, I can't hear you. What? What? No. And you're like, ah, oh, man, I got to switch them out again. Oh, I forgot. No, I actually have six sets of headphones then because I have the set that doesn't work well that I only use when I'm talking to you so that I can ignore you. Um, <laughs> uh, so I guess that makes six. There you go. The dreaded sixth. Um, <laughs> all right. Well, hey, are we on for next week? Absolutely. I'm looking forward to it. All right. I can't wait. I'll talk to you then. Okay. Bye. Bye. What?